Welcome to the Redeem Evangelical Mission Tram Atlanta. This is a place where we gather together in quality praise and worship of the true and living God. Equipped with the world of God for growth and fellowship with one another. God bless you as you listen to this message. How many of you have come down from yesterday's service? Awesome word awesome word. Come on, put your hands together. People have been sending texts from different parts of the world concerning the word we received yesterday night. And uh, we are so happy that this another, and I am so joyful because God is doing great and mighty things. When you are privileged to hear this type of word, what it does to you is it establishes your foundation in faith. In a changing world and a world filled with uncertainties, you need something that will give you assurance and confidence that you are not missing the road. So we are grateful to God for having these men. And once again this morning is my joy to welcome Bishop Tudor Bismarck to come and share with us. Come and welcome him to the microphone. Good morning, good morning. Somebody asked me in the foyer, how did I sleep? I said, I slept on my left side. <laughs> Amen. Turn to your neighbor and say, how did you sleep? How was your night? How was your night? How was your night? Father, we thank you for this service this morning. We pray a special prayer on our presiding bishop, Bishop Michael Conquer, Bishop Peace, their wonderful family, Kachi and uh, Uche, the leadership of TREM, we pray for them this morning. The day you have made, we rejoice, we're glad in it. Bless Dr. Audible, our other speaker this morning, in Jesus' name. Let's go to a couple of scriptures before you sit down. The title of this morning's message is, We Are Life Givers. We Are Life Givers. And uh, John 10 verse 9 <clears throat> John 10 verse 9 John 1 verse 4 John 14 verse 6 I am the door by me if any enter John 10 verse 6 John 10 verse 9 if any man enter in he shall be saved and shall go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes not but for to steal, to kill and to destroy, but I am come that you might have life and that they may have it more abundantly. 1.4 of John, in him was life and the light was the light of men and the light shines in darkness and the darkness did not comprehend it. And finally for this reading, John 14 verse 6, 
Jesus said to Philip, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. Father, add a blessing to this word in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. In the concluding, re concluding remarks of Moses to the children of Israel in the Pentateuch, Deuteronomy 30, verse 19, the Lord is speaking to the children of Israel and says, I want you to record this. I call heaven and earth to record against you that I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, choose life. Therefore, choose life. He doesn't say choose life and blessing. He says, therefore, choose life that both you and your seed may live. If you are willing and able, say, I choose life. Say that again. So the definition of life very simply is a breathing, living entity. And the definition very simply of a life giver is one who empowers or one who extends or one who gives life. A life giver is a creator. A life giver is one who extends the expression of being to another or to an entity. And so even a stoic building that is like this one this building is given life. If nobody meets in this building for one year, nobody cleans this building for one year, the building will die. Because even things that we create with our hands are given life. This microphone is being given life by the person that holds it. Take this microphone and put it in a cupboard for one year, it will die. And so life is beyond breathing, seeing, hearing, feeling, making decisions as human beings, which we'll get to, but it involves all kinds of entities which we'll go through. So who is a life giver? On the top of the list, Almighty God is a life giver. He is life. He is the author of life. And he has many expressions and dimensions in which life is experienced. Invisible and visible, tangible, intangible. And so they are entities within God himself that are life beings that as finite humans with our mind, we can't grasp such, but we know they exist. And so God then extends his life as pertaining to our era into forms in Genesis chapter number one, from animal, flora, fauna, etc., 
and finally into mankind where God breathed into a mud ball who was a spirit being, Genesis 1.26, breathed into that man and gave him Zoe life and Adam became a living soul. Jesus breathed <clears throat> excuse me, on his apostles and said, Receive ye the Holy Spirit, and gave them an extended, expanded life, which was that of a spirit world. The second life giver are ministry leaders. I'm going to race through this this morning. The ministry is empowered by God to speak words of life. Our responsibility is to speak words of life. And so when we speak to you responsibly from the sacred desk, it's to extend to you hope beyond your current and present experience because our words are to be words of life, to give hope, to give faith, to give charity. The ministry is empowered by God to set a life blessing. So Aaron was told, when you say, the Lord bless you, the Lord keep you, uh, his hand be upon you and grant you peace, Aaron was extending life to the children of Israel. The minister also, through his or her teaching, provides life where people develop a life plan that is multi-generational. And so from this place, as we minister life, we give people hope for their children, their grandchildren, because the Bible says a good man lives an inheritance for his children and his children's children. So that's life for at least three to four generations. Number three, the church is a life giver. The church is a life giver. So the church, again, in broad terms, that's everybody involved in the expression of Christianity. We are custodians of the life of God, the life of Christ. And that is seen by the way we manage and handled the Word of God, the B-I-B-L-E, that's the book for me. The way we dispense and interpret the Word of God to our people determines the quality of life that is given to them. We are also, as the church, custodians of the faith which we must contend for what we believe, but why we believe what we believe. Because without fundamentals of what we believe and knowing why we believe, life will be short term. And so when we get life, we get life more abundantly. And as the church, we are also custodians and responsible for the people that are given to us, the people that we are being given to take care of, we have to extend to them 
hope for a life in this world, but also life beyond this world. As the church, we are also responsible for the gifts in people to discover those gifts, refine those gifts, and utilize those gifts. We have a massive responsibility to help people that are gifted in so many ways for their gift to find life or find an expression or a place to express their gift. And so if you track Christianity very briefly in what is called the Renaissance, in the awakening through the Dark Ages, Europe became industrialized in what is the Industrial Revolution because the church woke up. People began to read the Bible. The printing press was invented. And so the Bible was not confined in Latin to a priest in a Orthodox or mainline church, but average people had access to the word of God and with that came life and thus an industrial revolution. I think it was two trims ago when Dr. Ottawa mentioned uh, his concern that the awakening of Africa in terms of Christianity is quite an anomaly in that it has not been accompanied by a similar industrial revolution or economic empowerment on the same scale, which we are interrogating for some reason. Apparently, Canada needs us. <laughs> the fourth one, parents are life givers. Parents, and they are on several levels. Jesus had to have parents on the earth. And when he goes to the temple and he is speaking words of wisdom at the age of 12 and asking intelligent questions and his parents find him after three days, it had to be three days because it's the holy place, the courtyard, the holy place, the holiest of holies, yesterday, today, tomorrow, faith, hope, charity. When they find him on the third day, uh, he says, I'm about my father's business. And so the Bible says he went back and was subject to his parents for 18 years. And so they taught him life principles. So parents are life givers. To come into the world, you have to come through somebody. So parents are life givers. Once you have been birthed or once you birth an entity, you are responsible for what you birth. And so the parents are to provide the best quality of life for their children and those that they are custodians of. This is also true of spiritual parents. We must make sure that we make quality of life available. Number five. Government are life givers, at least supposed to be. A government is in place for the people, 
so that there is the rule of law, that there is order, that resources can be given to its citizens for the quality of their lives. And so the government is to provide its citizens peace, security, stability, the rule of law. The government is to protect the investments and the property rights of its citizens. We can't work all our lives and lose all our money and lose our property and lose our investment. Our governments are responsible, or at least should be, for investments so that the inheritance that you work so hard for your grandchildren are in place. And so when we first had our meltdown with our hyperinflation in Zimbabwe, we bought cars. So Chich and I bought Mercedes Benzes and we just stacked them in our yard. Uh, one man thought we were car dealers because money was losing value so quickly. And uh, we bought a property. It was like 800,000 US dollars when we signed. But because it was not legal to trade in US dollars, when we signed the value of the property in Zim dollars was like 37 million Zimbabwe dollars. The equivalent was 800,000 US dollars. After a number of years, a few years with hyperinflation, we were able to change money on a certain platform, $1,000, and paid for that building. We were advantaged, but the people that sold us the building were so disadvantaged. They made a massive, massive loss. We bought a number of properties on that kind of platform. We tended to think it's smart business. <laughs> the government has to give life to assure basic human rights. And there are 34 of those. They are life givers. Government is to provide health care and education for all because they are life givers. They are to provide food security and sustainable living as far as food production is concerned because they are life givers. It is a crime for government men that are elected and women elected into government positions to steal so much money and bury it in their backyard. Where you have a man that's responsible to deal with corruption and you find in his backyard $40 million buried. It is a crime, especially when somebody is being trusted as a life giver. Number six, number seven, a business owner is a life giver. So you as a business owner, you are giving hope to somebody who depends on you to keep your business stable so they earn a salary with possibly benefits, a company car, schooling, a holiday year or there, 
And so as a business owner, you should not be squandering the profits. You should give your business a long life. In Zimbabwe, there's a company that collapsed a few months ago, a huge uh, conglomerate of, of uh, super grocery stores. 900 jobs were lost overnight. The supply chain of individuals supplying goods to those stores all collapsed. And so thousands of people have been affected because of irresponsible uh, business owners. Some of the board members, the directors, awarded themselves millions and millions of dollars and destroyed a healthy company. And as a life giver, that company has destroyed the lives of many. Children are not going to school, and so they've been set back many years. Number eight, farmers. Nigerians must start farming. You've got a lot of water, you've got a lot of arable land. Zimbabweans have got to get back to farming. Zambia is getting into farming. The world will always need food. The Chinese will eat anything. I mean, they'll eat anything. Farm and send it become millionaires on farming because a farmer is a life giver farmers must be protected farmers must be supported and farmers must be encouraged to produce the right kinds of produce so that the people whom are owners or farmers can also begin investing into their children into the future. Number nine, education institutions are life givers. I can't remember my grade two, three, four, five, six, seven school teachers. I remember my form one teachers because they beat me. But I'll never forget my grade one teacher, Mrs. Alfreds. I was five years old, just a little boy. And Mrs. Alfreds looked after me because my parents had left me with some strange old people. And Mrs. Alfreds put into me the want to learn. And then in Form 1, Sister Stella Mackey, after she wrapped my, my knuckles with a ruler every day to learn my times table and to spell. I still have the scars. Taught me how to love to read. Life givers. And so education, schooling and the quality of schooling were life givers and in Africa we have to improve our education systems. Those that have money are sending their kids abroad. Government leaders are doing that instead of investing in education in our own countries. So education is an institution that's a life giver. Life givers, number nine is health care. Health care, hospitals. New Life Covenant Church 
I think we have 55 doctors in our church and so the month of uh, October was health month and so doctors were presenting on various kinds of cancer and sicknesses uh, that are preventable uh, that can cause life loss of life and just simple things that Africans are dying of simple health care simple health tips can save people's lives so I encourage individuals here men get your health checks once a year women get your pap smears done go for those uh, breast cancer tests don't leave it go to those institutions because they'll save your life if not for you for your children and so healthcare is important hospitals and clinics must be built and staffed doctors and nurses must be supported and encouraged we have to invest in those and they must be paid well government must pay them well and let me go back to education my view teachers should be the highest paid in my view because they are life givers now we come to the more intangible wisdom is a life giver pray for wisdom every day seek wisdom desire it wisdom is something that if we ask God he will give it now when you ask for wisdom every day you are going to get a complicated problem that you have to solve to prove to you that you have wisdom in the intangibles number two your thoughts are life givers as a man thinketh so is he so separate yourself at least once a week and think think let's think our way out of challenges let's build our minds and feed our minds with positive thoughts let's create not just our own thoughts but think tanks Napoleon Hill uh, Norman Wilson Peel and that group with Andrew Carnegie put together think tanks they called it the mastermind principle let's develop thoughts and ideas that go into the future let's seek revelation knowledge how things work and implement number three manage words this is just basic I'm going somewhere manage your words because words are life and life is words and so expand your vocabulary because you cannot be what you cannot say and so uh, they, they are, you know I bought a new Samsung phone I lost my phone going to the States just being klutzy and so I bought a new Samsung these flip things and I didn't know how to switch it on I had to ask my two and a half year old grandchild how to switch on the phone and then I got one of our staff members to help set up the phone and I used to say to the phone for about four, four weeks this is such a stupid phone 
It's so silly. So the Lord said to me, you keep on saying this to the phone, it will be what you say it is. And so I started saying, I, I was firstly very sarcastic. I was saying, oh, nice phone, nice phone, beautiful phone. And the Lord said to me, you can be silly. You can keep on being silly. The moment you get serious, this phone will be what you tell it to be. And so when I got serious, within 18 hours, this phone is magnificent. It does everything. It makes coffee. <laughs> so we have to manage our words. We have to manage our words. We have to reject negative conversation. We have to renounce pessimism. We have to move away from people who, who just speak bad, bad, bad. Yes, I mean, you tell the truth. Things are tough in Nigeria, but yes, uh, we walk by faith and not by sight because our words are life. And so in your morning, speak life in the morning. And in the evening, celebrate the life in the evening. Number four, number five in the abstract, giving is life. Give and it shall be given unto you. The more you give, the more you receive. The problem is that we don't have enough space. The generosity of your heart in a cheerful manner brings life to you. The happiest people in the world are the most generous. Your prayers are life givers. Number six, I think it is. Prayer, number five, prayer is a life giver. Something that must be continued. And we thank God for the, the discipline that we see with Africans, where we are given to prayer. And so prayer is a life giver. It's the spiritual outlook for which we exist. It is the blood system of your Christian experience. And along with that is fasting and prayer, because by such certain things are moved. These are life givers. And I think what's kept us sane on the continent is our ability to pray. Let's talk about individuals in the Bible that are life givers. We'll start off with Abraham. He was barren, his wife was barren. At some point, God gave Abraham the ability to be a life giver, both physical and spiritual. We are his sons by faith, but he has his physical sons, starting with Ishmael, bad mistake. Isaac, and then Jacob, all of them life givers, but not just to life, but to solid eternal institutions that have deep spiritual implications. Isaac and Rebekah were life givers. And that is seen by the wells that they produced and the sons they produced. Jacob and his four women were life givers on which we have the fundamentals of, of our religion, Judaism. Out of that came Joseph who was a life giver. He saved an entire generation from extinction because God imparted to him a gift of interpreting dreams. He was a life giver. Moses was a life giver. Without Moses, we wouldn't know too much about life and 
the human family and definitions and expressions of life. Elijah was a life giver. He was sent to Zarephath to bring life to a widow that had two sticks cooking one meal and was going to die. But when Elijah came from a brook that was a life giver, that dried up, God was trying to show him that the brook inside of you is greater than the brook outside of you. You must go to a woman whose life is drying up. You are going to bring life to her. And God showed him he was a life giver because when the boy died, Elijah stretched himself on the boy. And the boy, even though he died, the dead boy gave Elijah life. Because the Bible says Elijah stretched himself on the boy. The death of the boy was a gift for Elijah. Because the boy's death forced the prophet to stretch. To face the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. Without the death, no stretching. Without stretching, he would not have had the capacity to face 450 prophets of Baal. And so even in death, life is given. Elisha became a recipient of Elijah's ability to give life. And he himself became a life giver. And I can say so many things about Elisha, but as a life giver, he even caused a piece of steel, an axe that was borrowed, that was lost, to have life and swim. Because when you are a life giver, there are things that are not supposed to be. They become something because of the life giver at the end of it. They are people whose lives, whose businesses, whose futures have sunk under the waters of life. But you will point at the place where they have sunk. And because you are a life giver, you give them life, but life more abundantly. Shout, I'm a life giver. Tell your neighbor you are a life giver. So lift up your head. Lift up your head. You are a life giver. I'll get to Jesus in a minute. The apostles were life givers. They were named in chapter number 10 of the book of Matthew in their rank. And Jesus told them what to preach. And when you look at the message they preached, they preached a message of life and of hope and of elevation. And they themselves were awakened into a new place. And so when Peter and John get to the gate beautiful, there's a man who has broken legs. He can't walk and he's asking for money. And Peter says, silver and gold we don't have or silver and gold you don't need you need a life and so when adam was in the garden of eden his legs were broken he couldn't walk with god anymore in the cool of the day he spent quality time with god every evening in his superhuman state walking as God, with God, being Godistic, 
every evening discussing the successes of the day and the visions of tomorrow and when he sinned he couldn't walk with God anymore his legs were broken and so fast forward to 4,000 years when three men are on the cross Jesus died and when the soldiers came they said we can't keep these men on these crosses and so they broke the legs of the thieves that were alive but they could not break Jesus legs because not a bone in his body could be broken the reason for that the reason his legs could not be broken was because he had to restore broken legs from Adam's day and so in the church the first miracle of necessity could not be the blind see the deaf hear the mute speak the first miracle had to be men are going to get their legs fixed again to walk with God in the cool of the day you need money but you don't need money you need to be able to walk in the things of God and so Peter and John become life givers and a notable miracle was done amongst them all Paul Barnabas Silas Timothy Titus life givers their disciples Polycarp Irenaeus Augustine Francisca all of these were life givers Aquinas Martin Luther John G Lake Billy Graham Ora Roberts Benson Ideosa Adibuye Okwankwa Imakando Otterbole uh, Guti you list them all life givers you as a person you are a life giver don't demean yourself lift up yourself and be the life giver that God has called you to be but most of all the most common of all is Jesus the Christ he's a life giver he is a personal savior for me he visited me at the age of 12 I was dying I was a sickly boy Lobengala Street 6th Avenue he came through the curtains and healed me I have a, I had a growth behind my leg here I have a scar from here to here they thought it was cancer and I tried to touch this beam of light and he touched me and healed me and sent me at the age of 12 that sending came into an experience at 16 in 1972 and then I was visited by him in 1974 which will be 50 years next year preaching in a personal experience he is a life giver and once he breathes on you and gives you life you give life to others I can't tell you how many people that Okwankwa through his program and Audible through his programs have given life to people in places in the world such as you are there's only one thing you'll be able to take to heaven with you only one thing and that's a soul there's nothing else you take into heaven no money no Bentley no Rolex no clothes no Kinte no glasses a soul and so I want to close this session if you have experienced Jesus Christ a life giver as your personal Savior I want you to raise your hand if you are a Christian and Jesus Christ is your personal Savior 
and your life has been changed, can you give him thanks by clapping your hands? Now that you are rejoicing that you are a Christian and Jesus has given you life, I want to challenge you. Win a soul. Win a soul. Just one person for 2024. I'm not against crusades, we need them. I'm not against evangelistic services, we need them. An evangelist is part of the fivefold ministry. But for you, you must be a soul winner, one soul. I was preaching in Orlando, Florida for a minister there, Rod Parsley was the guest speaker. And so I went to listen to him to get the tone of the meeting the Thursday night, I preached Friday. And there was a lady that was sitting next to me in the middle of his message. He said uh, to her name, I think her name was Maria, said, this lady sitting next to Bishop Bismarck, her name is Maria, please can you stand? This is in February this year. He said, tell this church how many souls you have won to the Lord this year in the last seven weeks. She said 11,500 souls. And then he said to her, how many souls did you win to the Lord in 2022? She said, 154,000 souls. I took her hand, I said, please pray for me. I want to be a soul winner. Because truly, as a life giver, you can give people a job. You can give people education. You can give people health care. You can give people pastoral love. But there's one thing that you have to give people is an invitation to eternal life. As a life giver, of all the things you do, farming, water reticulation, whatever, of all the things you do, introduce people to Jesus Christ, win a soul. And so every year I target one person. There are two that I've been working on for 20 years. The one came to church for the first time in 20 years this year. He slipped in at the back. And then at the baptism we had, we have baptisms three or four times a year. Very quietly, he was baptized. And he told me two weeks later, he said, I was baptized. One soul, just one. Don't you never say, give one soul life, just one. Preaching over the pulpit doesn't count. Just one soul, a family member, an uncle, an aunt, a next door neighbor, an employee, a boss, one soul. Father, we thank you that you've given us life and life more abundantly. We thank you that you've made us life givers in so many ways as parents, as grandparents, as uh, employers as government officials, as educators, as doctors. We thank you for the cures you've put in our heart and in our spirit. We thank you, Lord, for giving us eternal life. Put grace on our lives to extend salvation to many others. I commit to being a soul winner. In Jesus' name, amen.
what a powerful name he is glory to God come on celebrate this awesome name you know you know the Bishop Bismarck just challenged us this morning very simple and yet very profound and when he was sharing my mind just went back to many people sleeping into eternity without Jesus we are here celebrating we are here thanking God for kingdom life we are here thanking God for what he has done in our lives and we believe that there is eternity we believe there is hell for anyone who not just temporary hell eternal forever it and I'm not just talking for the moment I'm, I'm, I'm looking at our different churches where we gather every on every occasion on midweek and other services special services Sunday and people come they are happy we preach them happy, we teach them happy, and yet around them there are people who are sleeping into eternal hell, and it doesn't bother anyone. This, this, this is a charge to every one of us, it's a serious charge. It's talking about one soul a year. And yet, in our different congregations, there are those who have, year in, year out, never care for any soul. And yet, this is the most important thing. Even if you give a car to somebody without Christ, that's still not as most important. Even if you build a house for the person, and he sleeps into eternal, like he said, you are not going to carry house to heaven house will not go with us not building not not can not your jewelry nothing like complete closure to everything the dresses you have in your wardrobe will just be there most important thing soul you see you see you see i don't this this Conference have been going into different directions which are very strategic and key and God is speaking speaking into our individual hearts and I don't want us to, to just take it as we have attended conference we have attended kingdom life it's a serious matter it's a very serious what what he just did this morning as simple as it is, is a is a major serious issue that we have been confronted with. 
which unless you are irresponsible dishonest dumb or blind that you will not realize what has just taken place through what this charge that is given to us we have irresponsibility time is running out and every day every single minute with the world events you are beginning to see how the world is changing at a very fast rate things are just revolving and in a very eyes unfolding telling us that jesus is around the corner it's no joke church has gone beyond just entertainment and and all that it's a serious matter it's a serious matter we are faced with we are life givers we are life givers we are life givers We're going to continue in the same vein. Let's welcome Dr. Bensa Otavil to come and share with us what God has put in his heart. Come on, give him a good God bless you. Christ has already gone ahead, gone ahead to defeat the enemy. Defeat, defeat, de 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 defeat the enemy. He has done the job. Our job is to hold what Christ has, what Christ has given to us. Thank you very much. God bless you. Please be seated. Thank you so much, uh, Bishop Mike. Thank you for the opportunity. It's always a joy and privilege to be here at Trem. Um, you go to a church where you can preach quite freely uh, without thinking too much about whom you're going to upset. Because sometimes you preach in places, you have to be very careful. Uh, because there are all kinds of beliefs and doctrines being practiced there that you have to navigate very, very carefully. Uh, but when we come here, there is a sense of freedom uh, because the Word of God is prime in this house and we want to thank God for that. I want to thank uh, Bishop uh, Tudor for his word. I, I was just asking him about the lady. I mean... Is she doing mass soul winning or what? <laughs> you know, how can she win so many souls? And she does it from morning to evening, knocking on people's doors, just witnessing everywhere. And uh, amazing, amazing. If we all do the work of the ministry, the work of Christ will be done fully. Amen. All right. I asked for a whiteboard. I hope everybody can see the board and the cameras will probably uh, focus a bit on it when I start writing so that everybody can see what is written. But a couple of things I wanted to share, I thought the whiteboard will help to illustrate it better. So today I'm going to teach on understanding the Bible. Understanding the Bible um, we we all read the Bible uh, each one of us read it um, 
we hear it preached out of um, and we come to some conclusion we, we and we somehow think that the conclusion we have come to is the right way to understand it so if I read uh, a passage in the Psalms or I read a passage in first Kings or I read a passage in 1 Corinthians or Ephesians uh, as my morning devotion, um, how do I tell whether the way I'm understanding it is the way it should be understood? Um, and I hope that what we will go through today will just give you some ideas that will help us when we read the Bible to know how to approach it. There are general rules for uh, interpreting the Bible. I'm not going to go too much into that. But the, one of the most important things in understanding the Bible is to determine what is the Bible. Uh, which books are in the Bible? Which books are not in the Bible? Um, and generally Christians believe that there is what we call the canon of scripture the canon the word canon means rule there is a canon of scripture uh, and then there is the deutero canon uh, of scripture uh, and then there are other things that people uh, read that is neither canon nor deutero canon they are just some things now, the major differences people have in Christian doctrine has to do with what they consider to be scripture. So for most evangelicals, you and I, most of us, we believe that there are 66 books of the Bible, starting from uh, Genesis and ending in Malachi uh, in the Old Testament, that's 39 books. And then starting from Matthew and ending in Revelation, there are 27 books. We put it together, that is the canon of scripture. And that word is very important, okay? I think I need some liquid in my... So that's the canon of scripture. But if you were a Roman Catholic, you would notice that there would be other books that the Catholics uh, read outside of the 66 books that the Protestants read. Um, and those are the deuterocanon scriptures. Deuter means second. So the Catholics, for example, have a second set of books that is included and um, uh, Normally we call them the Apocrypha. Um, and, and so that means that the doctrine is going to arrive at a place different from how your doctrine will arrive because of what is considered scripture. Now the Roman Catholic Church has that and then they also have a third category which they call tradition. So whether it's the doctrine of purgatory, assumption of Mary, and so on and so forth, you cannot prove it in your uh, 66 books. But because there's other books 
they can formulate doctrines that Protestants don't agree with. Now, if you go to the, uh, the, the uh, let's say, Latter-day Saints, the Mormons, they have the Book of Mormons, so they arrive at a conclusion that you and I will not arrive at. Uh, if you look at the Jehovah's Witness, they have a reinterpretation of Scripture with some words changed, so they also arrive at some conclusions. But if everybody took the same book, you find out that we will all arrive at the same conclusion. That is why in mainline Protestant Christianity, uh, and by Protestants we are talking primarily about churches like the Lutheran Church, the Anglican Church, uh, the Methodist Church, the Presbyterian Church, the various Zions, uh, and then later on coming into uh, churches like uh, the Pentecostal churches, uh, Church of God, Church of God in Christ, Assemblies of God, and so on and so forth, right up to charismatic churches who all subscribe to 66 books of canon. You find out that the fundamental beliefs are the same. Because you cannot read the Bible and arrive at a different conclusion. So even with the Catholics, you find that the essentials of the faith, that there is one God, that Jesus is the Son of God, that the, there is a Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that Jesus Christ died for us, that in his death, there is redemption that he's coming again uh, these cut across every Christian denomination we all accepted that because the rules for interpret interpreting the scripture will lead you almost to the same conclusion the only time the conclusion is different is when other books are added then you're going to arrive at different conclusions so there are beliefs that, for example, the Roman Catholic Church has, or maybe the Greek Orthodox Church has, or some other church has, that Protestants don't have. Our relationship with Mary, we believe she's a virgin, we believe Jesus uh, was born through a virgin, but there are other things that the Catholics, for example, believe about Mary that we don't find in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It is in church tradition. Of course, it's going to lead to a conclusion that is different from ours. But for us, we start with the canon of scripture based on the 66 uh, books of the Bible. 36 in the, uh, 39 in the Old Testament, 36, uh, 27 in the New Testament. It's so important because if you are a Christian and you start accepting other books outside of this as your canon you're going to arrive at a different conclusion and these days i see a lot of christians dabbling in all kinds of books uh in in in, in their effort to know uh, god better and my my point simply is even the 66 you don't know it well why why do you want to know something more so just stay with the 66 and and master the 66 all right but um trying to read other books and the reason why even the catholics 
uh, do not consider some of the books they read as primary canon is the is the rules for canonizing a book of the Bible what you have to consider to determine this qualifies as the Word of God so uh, we start with the canon of Scripture we stay there now in understanding the scripture there are uh, I will talk about five uh, ideas um, my marker is not working too well five ideas that I want to talk about it's okay we'll go on the first one is inspiration 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 is important it is the means by which God breathed his word to us inspiration all scripture is inspired by God the second word is revelation God through inspiration gave us a revelation God through inspiration gave us a revelation in a theological sense the word of revelation has a limited meaning but normally generally uh, people use that word broadly but it has limited meaning it, it is the means by which God has specially inspired his word to come to us it is the process of his word coming to us that we call revelation all right okay let's hope it works so we have okay inspiration we have revelation my handwriting is beginning to look like a doctor's handwriting <laughs> we have revelation and then we have interpretation no yes interpretation interpretation so this is God breathing into us this produces revelation revelation has to be interpreted and we understand through illumination now illumination is when your eyes are open and you you are able to understand the interpretation of the revelation of what God has inspired the final thing is application application is basically what you do with the illumination that you have received now this is simply five steps now many times we confuse this word and that word revelation and illumination uh, and the intention is right but sometimes uh, you, you we, we may use words differently so 
I cannot receive revelation. I can't. Because the moment I say I use revelation, I am talking about the writing of scripture. So if I say, for example, what I am telling you now is revelation, in a theological sense, it means what I'm telling you now is on the level of, of uh, Paul speaking or Isaiah speaking or, or Jeremiah speaking. Because when they speak, they are bringing revelation. When I speak, I am not bringing revelation. When I speak, I may be bringing interpretation of their revelation. And when you understand my interpretation, you have illumination. Now, illumination looks like revelation, and sometimes we call illumination revelation. But in the proper order of things, when you have clarity of understanding of the scripture, you have received illumination. When Isaiah speaks, that says the Lord, he's bringing revelation. When I preach on this pulpit, I am not bringing revelation because my word is not canon. I hope you understand. My, my teaching is not canon. No preacher's teaching is canon. Everybody is focusing on God's revelation, interpreting it so there will be illumination. And so when people preach, we receive illumination. Our eyes are open. Our understanding is open. We say, aha, oh wow, I didn't know that's what it meant. That is illumination. Now, sometimes we call it revelation. I don't have a quarrel with it. I'm just saying that you have to have clarity of these thoughts. Otherwise, in interpreting the scripture, we can get some things not right. All right. Now, when we are interpreting scripture, which is where most of the time we are, when I'm preaching, I am interpreting scripture. When Bishop preaches, he's interpreting scripture. What Bishop Bismarck just said, he's interpreting scripture. He didn't write scripture, he's interpreting scripture. I don't write scripture, I interpret scripture. All right. So then, how do we do it? How do we then interpret scripture? And I'm going to read two passages in the Bible. First Corinthians chapter three, verse 10 to 11. This is the apostle Paul speaking. And it says, according to the grace of God, which was given to me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation another built on it. But let each one take heed how he builds on it. For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. So Paul is saying, I have laid the foundation. Then he says, you can lay no foundation except the foundation which has been laid, that is Jesus Christ. So in other sense, Paul is not saying, Jesus is a foundation, I'm also laying another foundation. 
he says jesus is the foundation and what i have done is to do what jesus wants to be done i have laid christ as the foundation i want you to keep that in mind then you go to ephesians chapter 2 verse 19 to 21 now therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets Jesus Christ himself being the chief corner stone in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord so if we take that as a basis we would say okay so there is something a foundation and the scripture says it's either called a foundation or cornerstone and it is Jesus Christ so when I am interpreting the scripture I start with the foundation Jesus Christ all scripture points to Jesus he is the originator of scripture and he is the conclusion of scripture he is the word which was in the beginning and is the word that ends everything jesus is the all in all of scripture so all scripture is founded on christ whether old or new testament then the passage says that we are built on another foundation They are standing on Christ and he calls one the apostles and this one is prophets. So what, what does that mean? It says that our doctrinal foundation is Jesus Christ and on top of Jesus Christ is the apostles and the prophets. Who is that? So does it mean that if somebody comes to church and says, I am Apostle uh, Otabel from Ghana, then I, I, because I carry that title, I am now one of the foundations for doctrinal belief. So, so somebody says, according to my apostolic office, I make these pronouncements and, and says whatever, and says I receive special revelation. So... You see the apostle the Bible is talking about, Paul is talking about. When he says prophet, is he talking about somebody who says, I see you. You are walking in the street and I see you've turned left and you've entered a house. The house is yellow. Is that the prophet that the passage is talking about? Because if you don't understand biblical terms properly, you may also be jumping to some conclusion. So who are the apostles and the prophets? The apostles here are the apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ. The apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ. And basically is the 12 that Jesus Christ um, chose and Paul. That's it. 
That's it. The apostles of Jesus Christ who immediately saw him, heard from him, observed his ministry, saw him die and resurrect. Eyewitnesses of the ministry of Jesus Christ. They are the apostles. Why are they important? Because it is through them that the New Testament canon was written. After them, people may be called apostles, but they are not this apostle. They are not this apostle. This kind of apostle ended with the canon of scripture. So after them, there is no other apostle. Now, does it mean that there are no people who operate in an apostolic office? I believe there are people who do, but their apostolic office is very different from this one because this one is the apostle who writes canon of scripture. Who is this prophet? This prophet here is the Old Testament prophet. So basically, what the passage is saying that Jesus is the foundation and on him is the New Testament. And the Old Testament, OT. Basically, that is what he's saying. So when I am interpreting scripture, there is a hierarchy for interpreting scripture. The first foundation is, what did Jesus say about it? Second, what did the apostles of Jesus say about it? Third, what did the prophets of the New Testament, Old Testament say about it? Now, if you were in the Old Testament, there are other writings. So in the Old Testament, you have among the uh, prophets, you have what you call the Torah and the prophets. When we say the Torah, we mean the first five books of Moses. When we say the prophets, we mean what you generally call the major prophets of the Old Testament. What you generally, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, these are the prophets. And then the Old Testament has also something that is called the writings. The historical books. For instance, Second Kings, and so on and so forth, uh, the Psalms, the prof, uh, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, they are the writings. In the hierarchy of things, the writings are at the top. So there is Jesus Christ, there's the apostles of Jesus, there's the Old Testament, the Torah, and the prophets, and then the writings. So for example, if I read a passage in the book of Proverbs, I cannot make the passage in the book of Proverbs a doctrine. Why? Because the passage in the book of Proverbs must conform to the Torah, it must conform to the prophets, it must conform to the teaching of the apostles, and finally it must conform to Jesus Christ. If the passage in the book of Proverbs contradicts what Jesus said, then Jesus Christ has the superiority. His word is above 
every other person's word are you are you following so for example you read from the writings that elisha although he's a prophet his story is in the writings elisha was upset because some little children called him a bald-headed man and 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 then he called a fire a bears to come and eat them so you say well it is in the bible that elisha called bears to eat children it is recorded but it is in the writings so i have to come to jesus christ and say what does jesus say about little children teasing prophets do does he say we should call a bear to eat them no two of jesus's disciples quoted elijah calling fire when jesus went to preach and he was rejected he said lord jesus call fire jesus says you you are crazy you don't even know who you are so therefore if i want to talk about how to respond to people who persecute us and people who make mockery of our faith do we take elisha's example of calling bears or we take jesus's example we take jesus so what i'm saying is when two ideas are in the bible and they seem to be saying different things your fallback is what jesus said if jesus didn't say anything about it what did the apostles of jesus say about it if the apostles didn't say anything about it what did the prophetic books of the bible say about it and first is the torah what does the torah say about it the old testament matthew mark luke uh, genesis exodus leviticus deuteronomy num uh, numbers deuteronomy what do they say about it and if they don't say anything about it before you go and look for other sources but normally by the time you hit jesus there's clarity on what to do and what to say now if you don't have this kind of understanding maybe you are having your morning devotion and you read something in the old testament maybe something elijah did or something elisha did and 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 and, and, and it's in the bible and you don't really know uh, can i also do that should i also do that should i also treat people that way you listen to the prayers of of uh, of david david prayed some very very dangerous prayers for god to break the jaws of his enemy is the kind of prayer africans like because it it works with the way we deal with things spiritually you know when an african goes to the fetish priest he's not going for teaching you don't go for instruction you go for two things i need money or kill my enemy two things either you give me money let my crops grow let my farm flourish and destroy the next door farmer's farm or I need 
to marry this man blind his eyes so he will marry me so that, that is how we approach things in our african spiritual world killing enemies destroying enemies or asking for prosperity so when we hear david praying that god will knock people's jaws it is it, it sits where we don't even need interpretation we, we feel okay with it but then you have to go to what did jesus say about the writings when he was reviled he did not revile back in christianity we are not followers of david we may learn from david but we are not followers of david we're not followers of solomon we're not followers of elijah we are followers of the lord jesus christ that's why we are called christians not elijahites or jeremiahs we are called christians not polites not peterines we are christians everything ends up with jesus now all of us there's a language we use god has spoken to me and we use it a lot i use it you use it we all say god has spoken to me when we say god has spoken to me we have to qualify it we have to qualify it because when i say god has spoken to me it is not the same as Abraham saying God has spoken to me because when Abraham says God has spoken to me he's providing revelation when I say God has spoken to me he's giving me illumination so I cannot legislate what God has spoken to me that is why in the New Testament the prophet in the New Testament his words must be judged now if his word is authoritative why should it be judged Paul says when a prophet is speaking let the others sit down and judge and say you're making that one is not correct that's a mistake why because his word is not canon his word is not of the category of biblical revelation his word is still God speaking but the category is a lower category it is God speaking to us through a vessel and in a way that needs to be judged and proven so that the right understanding is discerned if we don't do that and you say uh, that a prophet has spoken to you so God has spoken to you the mistake you are making is you are lifting the word of the prophet to a canonical level and when you lift it to a canonical level then you don't filter it you don't judge it because he said that says the lord that's not how we function in the interpretation of scripture it is jesus christ is the apostles is the old testament the torah and the prophets and the writings and when you have that balance it becomes your filtering system to filter your word that you have received 
For example, if some Christian says, just as I was praying, the Lord told me to do A, B, C. How do you know it was the Lord? And somebody will say, well, I know, I sense it. Yeah, you sense it, but how do, what is your measuring line? What ruler are you using to determine whether what I heard is from the Lord or not? If your measuring line is your feeling, then you are your own measuring line and you can't. You can't be the one saying it and the same person measuring it. If you say it, something outside of yourself must measure it. So if a person comes up to say, this morning as I was praying, the Lord spoke to me, that word which they say the Lord spoke to them must be measured by this rule. Does it fit into what Christ Jesus taught? Is it in line with the revelation of scripture? Is it in line with what the apostles of Jesus Christ taught? If it is not in line, then we have to make adjustments. I have six minutes and let me just go quickly to interpretation interpretation and I'm going to give you eight rules for interpreting the scripture eight rules number one is usage of words Bishop Bismarck was telling us about words and managing words, usage of words. What is the meaning of the words in the original language? Usage of words. Second is meaning of words meaning of words so for example when you read the bible you realize that words are arranged in a certain order some words come first and then other words come second so in that arrangement is the bible trying to tell us that what is being said first takes precedence of what is being said second so these are things you are looking for precedence first mention continuous mention grammar how the words are arranged the text of it meaning of the words what is the word saying I know most people like the King James version of the Bible and and it is good but because usage of English has changed sometimes you read the King James and you may just get a wrong English 
understanding suffer the little children come to me may then sound like beat the children as they come to me uh, whereas in plain 17th century English suffer means allow all right so simple simple things like that usage of words meaning of words and and sometimes I've heard people preach uh, you know major doctrines from a King James English and it is totally off it's just total misunderstanding of usage of words and meaning of words so sometimes uh, you use the more easier translations I use the New King James Version of the Bible as my go-to Bible but uh, I also study the original languages the, the Hebrew and in English and I do a lot of word study from the original languages but if you're not able to I would say that the American Standard Bible American Standard Version is a good version to work with uh, I know people use NIV NIV has got a couple of theological problems uh, in the way words are used because of the background of the translators and then others use the message Bible the message Bible and so on can just give you a broad common understanding of a verse and sometimes it gives you a nice picturesque modern day usage of the word but if you want to study the word then you cannot use the message bible because it it doesn't use word by word translation of the bible so if you want to do serious study you have to use a translation that gives you something approximate to the um to the original languages uh, but if you use the simpler ones uh, please be careful of them just use them to make yourself happy uh, but for deeper translation or interpretation no third is historical setting historical setting what is happening at the time this passage is being written was the situation at the time um, who is the writer what is he come where is he coming from is it because uh, the a kingdom is changing uh, is it a new kingdom is it about rebellion in Israel you know all of these things a historical setting uh, is very very important if you read Jeremiah you read Isaiah you read all of these people they are prophesying at the time Israel is going into captivity because of rebellion so uh, that forms a very uh, important background the fourth the f that's the fourth okay I missed one number three is context 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 and the historical setting the context means immediate context I mean you read this verse before the verse what was there and then uh, what what does the chapter have what was the author's intent uh, and all of that and all of that number five is form of literature form of literature is a history is a poetry is it parable is it allegory and sometimes in the Bible a, a story 
or a passage can start as a historical narrative and then it changes into poetry. A couple of years ago, I was preaching uh, during an event in the church and I was talking about uh, Joshua commanding uh, that the sun should not set over Aijalon uh, and, and Gibeon. And, and if, if you read the scripture, even in the English, you just realize that it starts as a historical account of a battle that is going on. That's a historical account. And then if you read your Bible carefully, you see that it changes from historical account to a poetical account. So if you read the Bible, most of the words that Joshua speaks are uh, in a poetry setting and they are italicized. So that means that although there is a historical context going on, the event that Joshua is talking about, he's describing it poetically. Now if you don't get that, then your interpretation of what happened uh, will be affected and I'm not going to go into the interpretation of it I'm just saying that sometimes you can have a historical narrative followed by poetic language and you have to know that the language has changed so I must use a different way to interpret what is happening here did the sun stop well we, we know that the earth revolves around the sun it has serious implications so if the earth stopped revolving at any point in time there will be danger in fact the earth would disintegrate so uh, did the earth stop i don't believe so i don't believe the earth has stopped it didn't stop rotating neither did it stop revolving did the sun change location no but when you read the passage, Joshua is talking to both the sun and the moon at the same time. So it means that he's speaking at a time when both the sun and the moon are in the sky. Now the story says that he is, they attacked uh, the people at dawn. So at dawn, he starts the attack and it's going into evening. So he, he now needs extra time to finish his job because when night comes, he can't continue fighting. The sun is there, the moon is there, and he says something that implies that there was extra light given to him so that he could finish his assignment did that extra light come from the sun not setting at all or the earth being stationary my reading my interpretation is that what happened was that the reflection of the sun on the moon became so intense that at the time when it was supposed to be moonlight which is dark the moon reflected an unusual intensity from the sun so that it looked on earth as if it was daytime that's how i understand it because if i go into another interpretation it means the earth stopped moving it doesn't 
it's not logical and because the language is poetic I think he's poetically describing what happened during that incident so the form of literature is very important and then we have logic 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 how does it flow how systematic is it the second the seventh is necessary inference necessary inference not forced inference necessary inference if you look at the passage are you forcing it to say what it is not saying we interpret unclear passages in the scripture in the light of the clear although all scripture is inspired by God some parts are a bit difficult to understand so for example you read Genesis chapter 1 and uh, in, you know there are six days there and you're wondering is this six days six normal days is this a different kind of six days how do you interpret this did God create everything in six days those are questions you're asking how do you understand this difficult scripture you have to understand it in the light of other points of scripture where there's clarity and in your search you will find uh, necessary inferences clarity of that scripture in other points uh, parts of the Bible and by the way I have my clear views of that and the number eight the last one is harmony of scripture harmony harmony of scripture scripture does not contradict itself scripture explains itself so I cannot arrive at a conclusion of an interpretation that is in conflict with another part of scripture because God is not the author of confusion what where I arrive at must work with the harmony of scripture in my understanding of the various covenants God has made the Old Testament and the New Testament everything must harmonize properly so that my belief of a passage in Genesis must harmonize with how I understand it also in the New Testament everything must work together now these are the eight things you're going to look out for now just before I close when you read the Bible you will not always understand everything you read in the Bible you will not always I don't understand everything I read in the Bible I have questions I'm still working on in the Bible trying to grapple with so don't be disturbed if you don't have all the answers at one go 
as you grow in your study in your understanding and grow in the in in the lord and grow in the spirit some things you couldn't figure out five years ago will become clear five years later of course you can take advantage of other people and their studies and what they have written and what they have said and use it as a means of growing your understanding of the scripture but if there's anything i want you to take away with you today is the hierarchy for interpreting scripture everything rests on jesus everything rest on Jesus that is where Christianity is uh, recently we had uh, an event in our church we call the God Summit and I did two presentations the first one is arguing for God from philosophy so the first day I didn't quote any Bible passage I started from ancient philosophy from Plato to Aristotle, Thomas Aquinas, and work my way through to scientific discoveries and make my point for the existence of God to prove that God is real even outside of the biblical writings. Then the second day, I did what I call reading Genesis chapter 1, one of the most problematic but important passages of scripture, so I did that. Um, when we finished, uh, people asked questions. So somebody came to ask, so pastor, what, do you, what about dinosaurs? Are they real or they are not real? And I said, listen, whether they are real or they are not real, it has nothing to do with my salvation. Because the core of the Bible, the core of the Bible is that God created all things. He created man. Man sinned and fell from the glory of God. God himself pursued the fallen man and came in the form of Jesus Christ. He died for the salvation of that fallen man. And he rose again from the dead. And in Christ Jesus there is salvation. The process of salvation is not completed at the time of receiving Jesus Christ as Lord. The first part is initiated when your spirit is reconnected to God. And then in your Christian life, you are learning to renew your mind by the word of God. But the finality of our, our salvation will take place in a place and time in the future when two things are going to happen. God will give us a new body that conforms to the new spirit we already have and then he'll create a new environment a new world and put us in and at that time he would have completed the process of the bible dinosaurs or no dinosaurs this is where we are going uh, so although i can answer for dinosaurs but all i'm saying is if you can't answer a question in the bible just remember the story of the bible and keep your focus right and don't get confused by anything simply because you don't understand it. And don't also believe everything simply because so-called man of God said it. Everything that anybody said is subject to scrutiny. 
because the only word of God that is not subject to revision is the revelation he gave by inspiration. God bless you. The professor has spoken. <laughs> Praise the Lord. What a profound teaching. Very profound. And I, I believe that you understood what he said. Very important. The interpretation in the light of the foundation. And not just somebody said, this one said. You see, everything is subject to scrutiny through the foundation that Christ has already given to us. Thank you, doctor. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. We, we, we really needed that foundation. We really needed that. And uh, more so at this time, when all kinds of things. And you, you, are, you, are, you are really on point when you said that people are asking all kinds of questions. People are even asking questions about their salvation, different kinds of questions, and which need answers. But we thank God for this conference. Once again, let's celebrate our speakers as they go. Glory to God. Celebrate them as they leave. For the, they're coming back again this evening to share with us. Come on, celebrate them. Hallelujah. Let's receive the offering. Everyone and those of you who made any commitment, you can come right away to, to drop it. If you make a commitment and you have it with you, you can come. You are permitted to come to this place and drop it. Otherwise, um, if you have prepared your offering, can you stand and let's... let's Give it no. All right. Those of you who are making transfers, you can make your transfers. Thank you, Jesus. Father, we are so grateful. What a joy that you have you have shown us grace through the word we are receiving. Thank you for taking us from glory to glory. We are grateful. Lord, we speak blessing over our offering. We let it be a sweet-smelling server to you. And for every giver and everyone in this building, Lord, we ask that you, that heaven over them remains open, will never be shut, that you will meet them at every point of need meet every budget every bill paid nothing broken nothing missing we declare it in jesus name Amen. somebody give god praise our god is worthy of praise hey. 